Amen. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm wondering, have you ever heard of the game, Something That You Should Like But Don't? Um, a quick example of this game, it goes kind of like this. Recently, people have been telling me that I should like the Popeye's chicken sandwich more than the Chick-fil-A sandwich. But I'm from Atlanta, and it's Popeye's. I, I just, I can't get there. So it's something I should like, um, but don't. Some of you who know me know, um, as with uh, fried chicken, I also really love poetry. Um, but very high up on my list of things that you should like but don't is the American poet Emily Dickinson. If, if you're a major Emily Dickinson fan, you know, we can, we can talk after the service or something. Um, but regardless, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote her today. Uh, Emily Dickinson, one of her most famous poems, um, pertains exactly to our topic this morning, and it's called Hope is the Thing with Feathers. And it goes like this. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tunes without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Now, there's a lot to, to commend in Dickinson's poem, a, a smooth meter, a, a pretty metaphor, an accurate description of hope's endurance, um, but it's, it's that last line that, that I can't get on board with. I, I just don't think it's true. I like the, the Bible psalm on hope, Psalm 130, much, much more. See, what Dickinson misses and the biblical psalmist captures so well is the cost of hope. Dickinson says, it costs nothing to hope. It never asked a crumb of me. But the Bible says it might cost you everything you have. In one of my favorite books of all time, it's called Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Viktor Frankl, who was a, an Austrian psychologist, he details the four years he spent imprisoned in Auschwitz, the most famous of the Nazi concentration camps. And as a renowned medical doctor undergoing that horrific experience, Frankl meticulously records and reflects on the psychological lives of Holocaust victims and survivors. And he concluded the most significant psychological phenomenon he observed during the Holocaust was the costly power of hope. See, what surprised him was that even in the darkest circumstances imaginable, the light of hope shone. In fact, even among the inmates, all of whom were going through you know, malnutrition, disease, exposure, depression, brutality, you name it, even among them, hope was common. Frankel goes so far as to say hope was necessary. It was the difference between life and death. Brothers and sisters, it's not so different with us today, is it? More than anything else, what you hope for is the oxygen that fuels your life. There's a line from a country singer named Pat Green that I've always liked. Uh, he says, we're all looking for redemption. We're just afraid to say the name. Psalm 130 is showing us in the end, everybody wants to be saved, but it's the content of our hopes that determines if our lives ultimately end in disappointment, or in fulfillment. Now this psalm, uh, this song of hope, it is a masterpiece. Like, like many great poems, Psalm 130 has a very distinct shape. The author shows us this shape in the subscript, which Paul just read for us, a song of ascents. Its shape, its pattern, it's like a staircase going up. So if you'll allow me this morning, I, I want to take you on a journey up that staircase. As we follow the four movements of the song, it should feel like walking up four subsequent stair steps. So our four points or steps this morning are depths, desire, delay, deliverance. So depths, desire, delay, deliverance. But first, depths. 
Let's dive in together. Turn with me again to verse 1. The psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So the natural question becomes, what are the depths? If you study the Old Testament, you'll see this theme of the depths recurring over and over. You'll hear about Joseph being captured and thrown in a hole and into the darkness of a dungeon. You'll read about Jonah being dragged down to the bottom of the Black Sea in the belly of a great fish. King David seeking shelter in caves, praying for God to deliver him from the pit, even from the valley of the shadow of death. These are all pictures of the depths. Simply, the the depths are the low places, the hard times, the rock bottoms. Have you been there? Maybe circumstance vaulted you down to the depths in a great plunge, a cancer diagnosis, an unspeakable tragedy, a few quick, terrible moments that changed everything after. Or maybe you've come to know the slow road to the depths, the road of addiction, of failure, of affliction, of loss. Friends, I can see in your eyes some of you have been driven to the depths. But it's not just our circumstances that leave us reeling in the depths, is it? There are also spiritual depths, those dark nights of the soul. Sometimes we have nights of anxiety, we have frightening moments when we feel like we are on the edge of a very deep abyss, not sure whether continuing to go on is is even worth it, wondering what it might feel like to just swim down, questioning if there could possibly be any meaning in the midst of this tremendous sadness. Have you been there too? Brothers and sisters, let me pause to say, if I'm describing you, if your heart is panging inside of your chest right now, beloved, you have come to the right place. The church is full of those acquainted with the depths. Hear me say this, if you're in the depths or you have been there, you are welcome here at Trinity, baggage and all. Please don't feel like you need to hide, not in the church of Jesus. Remember, it is Jesus who says to you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me and find rest for your soul. Amen. Furthermore, if you've spent serious time in the depths, you actually have an advantage in understanding this psalm. But most of us, if we're honest, um, we haven't spent too much time in the depths. We've had some ups and downs, sure. Um, We've had some rainy days mixed in there. But we honestly don't have a ton of firsthand experience of the lowest place. If that's you, that's okay. There's no shame in that. But let me ask you, haven't you, even briefly, tasted that tinny, iron-filled flavor of disappointment, of desperation, of despair? Have you never tiptoed to the edge of that abyss and peeked down? I think most of us have. To varying degrees, we're all acquainted with the darkness of the depths. But see, the question is, how do you respond when the inevitable roller coaster of life takes a turn towards the trough? What do you do when you feel yourself in the low place? Do you just stop swimming and let the waves wash over you? Do you pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Grind your teeth, work harder? Or do you, like the writer of Psalm 130, cry out to the Lord? Friends, it needs to be said up front, self-pity and self-help can't get you out of the pit. And aren't those the two dominant strategies in our culture? No, self-help and self-pity won't do. Only crying out to God can save you. And notice, too, the psalmist isn't just crying out to the void, is he? Just throwing up an emotive flare, hoping something out there might see it. No, he uses God's personal name, that little word, often translated in your Bible as the Lord, all caps. 
That's the author's way of signaling God's covenant name, the name of God's good character and promises. See, our psalm begins, from the very depths of midnight, a small voice cries out to Yahweh. If you want to be saved, that that is step one. Which brings us to step two, point two, desire. What does the psalmist want? What does he really want? So look again with me, verse two. The psalmist writes, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So pretty clearly the psalmist is asking for two things, right? For God to hear him and for God to forgive him. And and both are really interesting. First, did you notice the psalm says, the psalmist says, hear me, listen to me, not answer me. The request is to be heard, to gain admittance before the mercy seat of God. There's a real humility here. Not God, do this thing for me that I want, but God, please, hear my prayer. Secondly, he prays for mercy. See, mercy implies wrongdoing, a need to be forgiven. In other words, it implies the presence of sin. Friends, in this day and age, it is increasingly unpopular to talk about sin, even among some who claim Christ. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. The Bible is unambiguously clear on this point. You and I have a problem, a big sin problem. In fact, all of us, every single person walking on earth is guilty of transgressing God's perfect law and therefore stands spiritually condemned before the just judgment of God because of our sin. It's bleak, but that is the biblical reality. In other words, the truth is, we are all in the depths. And this is the idea the psalmist intends in verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Well, an illustration might uh, help clarify the point a bit. Like many of you, I've been uh, keeping up with, with the Olympics a lot and enjoying watching uh, those competitions. And I had this thought the other day. I'm, I'm sitting in front of the TV. I had this thought, what if I had to go out there? You had this thought? It's like that nightmare sometimes people have, you know, about having to take the final exam you haven't prepared for. But what about one of the sports with judges, you know, like gymnastics or diving? What if I had to go out there and compete? As, as you can probably tell, um, looking at me, uh, you know, jumping, spinning, flipping in the air, not, not my strong suit. According to the rules of the game, according to the standards of the competition, the judges would be forced to give me zero points. Before the Olympic judges, I could not stand. What about sinners before a holy God? See, Paul tells us in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. If you're not a Christian in here this morning, all this talk may very well be the thing about Christianity that is the hardest for you to swallow. You may be thinking, this is the part of Christianity I don't like. They always want to talk about sin, or maybe I I still feel like they're just good people and bad people. Let Let me just offer one question to you. Have you lived a perfectly moral life, even in your own eyes? I mean, even according to your own personal standards, have you been perfect? I bet not. Now, if there's a perfect being out there who is completely good all the time, wouldn't it be true that your moral life has failed to live up to his standard? I love this line from the Proverbs that says, each heart knows its own bitterness. Deep down, we all know that we're sinners 
and that we're in need of forgiveness, don't we? We're all looking for redemption, just afraid to say the name. If you're a Christian in the room, you're not off the hook either. We can't skate around what the Bible so clearly foregrounds as essential to the gospel. Because friends, let me be blunt, there is no salvation in Christianity. There can be no grace in the gospel without the recognition of our sin, of our deep personal transgression against God's law and subsequent guilt before God's perfect holiness. If we downplay or deny the power of sin, we are downplaying or denying the powerful victory of Christ. Amen? I'll say it again. If we downplay or deny the power of sin, we are downplaying or denying the powerful victory of Jesus Christ. Because look at the example the Bible gives us of how to approach God. The first step to salvation is admitting we desperately need mercy to be saved. So what are we, what are we to do? I mean, if this is our situation, where's the hope? comes in the very next breath of the psalm, verse 4. The great but, there's a lot of great buts in the Bible, but this is a great one. But God, but with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. That's it right there. You see, the psalmist, the Christian's most pressing desire, our greatest hope is that God will forgive and deliver us from our sin. That's the heart of the message this morning. The hope of the Christian is that God can and he himself will redeem his people from sin. Now, I know I've taken um, quite a bit of time to, to try to linger here in the low place, but can you feel the spirits of the psalmist trending up? See, from the depths of woe, he cries out, and then he realized is exactly what he needs. He needs to be saved. And so, beloved, do we. But there's a snag along the way, which leads us to step three, delay. Turn with me again to, to verses five and six of our psalm. They read, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. I mean, come on. Isn't that stunning poetry? Amazing poetry. Imagine with me for a second, what's it like to be a watchman? I'm going to venture a guess and say uh, it's been quite a while since any of you have read uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet. But for my buck, this is, the, this is the best description of watchmen that I can think of. Uh, maybe someone, maybe someone remembers how Hamlet begins. Um, it, it starts like this. It's the middle of the night. Two guards stand trembling, freezing on the highest parapet of Elsinore Castle, squinting their tired eyes, searching for danger through the thick fog, praying that the worst won't come, fearing it's already here. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, you can probably picture the men of the Night's Watch atop the wall in the blistering snow, staring with anticipation and dread, hoping against hope the morning will come. That's the feeling at this point of the psalm. It's the thickest part of the night. It seems as if morning will never come, that this darkness has no end. That's the life of the watchman. But the night is always darkest just before the dawn, right? So on and on, the psalmist, like the watchman, waits. Now, there's nothing fun about waiting, is there? There's no real way to, to sugarcoat it or spin it in a way that makes waiting more bearable. Like, waiting is hard. But friends, delay is part of God's plan. Delay is part of God's plan. 
Look at the heroes of the Bible. Abraham waited 25 years for a son, for God to fulfill that promise to him. Jacob waited 14 years for the wife he was promised. Joseph waited 40 years for the promise of God's vision to come true. Moses waited 50. Even David, the great king of Israel, waited years and years for God's promise of his kingship to be fulfilled. Friends, I don't know why, but God often makes us wait. I don't think it's always clear to us, even on the back end, why God has us wait. Does waiting test our faith? Sure. Does waiting refine our faith? Certainly. But waiting is inevitable. Waiting is uncomfortable. But waiting is not futile. Listen to what Paul says about waiting in Romans 8, 18 to 23. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. See, the hope is we won't always be waiting. Ultimately, God will show up, and when he does, it's going to be amazing. But in the meantime, how we wait is crucial. Here's the real practical part of the sermon, okay? I'm going to come down and get really specific for a minute. Three things you can do right now as you wait. Number one, pray. This is kind of a layup. If someone ever asks you the question, what can I do? Say pray. Pray. Anytime, anywhere, you have direct access to the throne of grace. Oh man, even as Christians, how often do we do everything else but not just stop and pray? You want to see revival like Jonathan talked about last week? You want to see the church of Jesus live out its mission and the gospel of grace erupt in the hearts and lives of your friends and neighbors? Friends, you should pray. Pray silently in the car. Pray aloud with your family. Get together with folks from church and pray. Have I said it enough? One more time. Pray. I hope this quote, uh, I love this quote uh, from, from New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham. I hope it encourages you. He says, prayer is waiting with desire. It's not passive. It's the most important thing we can do as we wait on God. Pray. Secondly, serve. You can serve others. For one thing, serving is a great way to pass the time as you wait. It redirects our focus away from ourselves, which we so desperately need. Furthermore, Jesus shown us that to follow him is to serve others, that placing others' needs over our own is the way to life. If you're pent up and tired of waiting, Look for opportunities to serve. Come and talk to the church staff after the service. There are plenty of ways you can be serving here, right now. And lastly, meditate on God's promises in Scripture. This one may sound a bit antiquated, but um, it's like the mid-range jumper. It's truly a lost art. The psalmist says, in his word I hope. And by word he means promises. Church, I urge you, Spend some time meditating to God's promises to you in the Bible. Write them down. Memorize them. Inscribe them in your houses and on your door frames. Reflect on them. Remind yourself daily who God is, what he's done, what he's going to do. I promise you, it will pay dividends in your spiritual life as you wait on the Lord. But friends, whatever we do as we wait, 
there's one truth we must keep at the foreground of our minds and hearts, and it's this. We never wait without hope. We never wait without hope. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our sure hope. So our fourth and final point this morning, deliverance. So our psalm opened way down here, right, in the depths, in the low place. But then the author cried out to God to hear him and to forgive him. And then finally he waited on the Lord to respond. But Psalm 30 ends quite the opposite from how it began. For the psalmist concludes in verses 8 and 9, he says this, O Israel, all of Israel, he stops thinking about himself, he starts thinking about collective, God's people, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Wow, we have come such a long way. See, now the psalmist soars. Hope abounds. He says redemption is coming. That's how it ends, with this tremendous effulgent faith. He says God will do it. God will save his people from sin. He will, but he, he will. Oh, beloved, can't you see how privileged we are to be standing on this side of redemptive history? Look at what we know that the psalmist, the watchman, couldn't see. Friends, you and I are standing on the very opposite side of the cross. The psalmist looked forward. His soul waited and waited with anticipatory hope that someday God would show up and do it. And now he has. See, the hope of this psalm has been fulfilled in Jesus. If you look again at the, at the last line of Psalm 130, you'll see in, in English it reads, He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. But, but there's an important nuance that, that's missing, quite frankly, in, the, in this translation. Um, see, in Hebrew, like in many languages, the, the verbs have the subjects built into them. So you don't need to like, state the subject explicitly to make the sentence make sense. Um, anyway, that, that's just semantics. But the, the author here includes the subject. So here's, here's the effect. That's the important thing. The psalmist isn't merely saying God will redeem. He exclaims, God himself will redeem Israel. It's not only that God is going to come and restore all things. Of course it's that. But it's that he's going to do it himself. And it's not only that he does it, but why he does it that makes the Christian gospel so sweet. Did you catch it? Why does God save us? Because of his steadfast love. It's so simple. It is so easy to read past. But the greatest surprise and the greatest joy in the whole universe is this. God loves you. He loves you. Beloved, that is the great hope of Christianity, that God himself so loved us that he will redeem his people from sin. The psalmist looked forward to it, but we look back. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has appeared to us, has come down from the glorious light of heaven into the darkness of the depths. Though each of us has sinned and stands guilty before God, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He's the only one who ever had a record worthy of being able to stand before the just judgment of God. And yet, he loved us so much that he willingly went to the lowest depths imaginable, sacrificing his life on the cross at Calvary, willingly bearing the just punishment for the sins of the world that you and I might be completely forgiven and granted the gift of eternal life. Amen? Amen. That's the gospel. If that's not good news... 
I don't know what is. If that's your hope, your life cannot end in disappointment. A couple quick takeaways as we conclude this morning. A couple, couple things I want you to notice as, as we go. First, as we look back on the psalmist's journey from the depths to the height of salvation, I want you to notice that the deliverance the psalmist waits for, it's not from circumstance, but it's from sin. We don't know if his circumstances actually changed or not, but we do know he was changed. God doesn't promise us that he will deliver us from every unfavorable circumstance in this life, but he does promise to deliver us from sin and transform us forever. That means forgiveness from sin is a present reality for Christians. I know I'm speaking fast, but this is big time stuff. Forgiveness from sin is a present reality for Christians. Friends, if you're in Christ, you have already been forgiven. And that means while you wait, you not only can endure any circumstance with hope, but you can also change. If you're not a Christian, don't you wish that was true of you? Don't you wish your sins could be washed away? That you could begin right here, right now, to live a new life as a new creation? Only by the cross of Christ is that possible. But it is possible today. Secondly, if you're in the depths, you don't need self-help, but divine rescue. This brings us back to, to Emily Dickinson and Hope is the Thing with Feathers. See, salvation in Christ is free. Grace and mercy and forgiveness, totally free. In other words, it's a gift, but it's available exclusively through Jesus. That means if you receive it, not only will it ask a crumb of you, it will cost you every one of your self-salvation projects. It will cost you everything else you're placing your hope in besides him. Remember, the hope of Christianity is God himself will redeem his people from sin. Not that you will someday get it all together and fix yourself. Not that you aren't really as bad as you thought, but someday we'll discover deep goodness hidden within you. How badly does our culture need to hear this? No, we're in the depths. We need complete, plentiful redemption. And that's exactly what God gives. So thirdly and finally, as we conclude, with the psalmist, y'all, we also are waiting Yes, Jesus has come and has conquered our sin on the cross, but he's not done. No, Jesus is coming a second time, and then he will restore all things. That's the hope in the Bible. No more crying or pain or tears anymore, for the former things have passed away. All the sad things come untrue. The light of Christ has shone, but it often feels like we're still living in the dark night but the dawn is rising. The morning sun fast approaches. Can you feel it even now rising up over the horizon? Every second that passes moves us closer and closer to that triumphant moment when the light breaks forth in glorious splendor and the whole creation will be plentifully, perfectly redeemed. See, we stand different now. We are redeemed sinners, yet we still wait like watchmen. But Jesus is coming again. And in that moment, beloved, all our deepest hopes will be realized. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, that this gospel is so great 
and that we feel so unworthy of it. But Lord, you loved us. You love us. And you have come to us in Christ to forgive us and to redeem us. And Lord, you're not done with us, but you are transforming us with the resurrection power of Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. And you are going to restore this entire creation and redeem it. Lord, we long await what you are doing. Thank you for what you've done. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.